Welcome to another edition of the Affluent Mind Series podcast. My name is Sid Queller. I'm a managing director with CIBC Private Wealth Management, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Teresa Marks, senior wealth strategist with CIBC. It seems as though you can't turn on the TV, pick up a newspaper, or browse the internet without seeing news about the potential tax changes coming out of Washington. To be honest, I find it overwhelming at times. The three that come to mind are for the 99.5% Act, sponsored by Bernie Sanders and Sheldon Whitehouse, the STEP Act, and President Biden's proposals. Teresa, can you provide a summary of these three proposals, starting with the four, the 99.5% Act? Absolutely. And and I agree with you, Sid. It can sometimes be just a little overwhelming, all that we're hearing, and sometimes all the conflicting things that we're hearing at the same time. So I'd be happy to walk through each one of those. And and I would say that, you know, certainly I will kind of hit on some of the high points. It's we don't have enough time today for me to get into all the all of the nuances. So certainly anybody sure. listening to this should think about their own circumstances and talk to their own advisors about how some of these might impact them. But certainly I can give a high level view and and start, of course, as you've said with the for the 99.5% act which was introduced at the end of March by Senator Sanders you know and this is an interesting one because it it really takes a look at the estate tax and, and a gift tax and makes some some pretty big changes to the current system as we know it so really there are three big changes as i look at the act and first to the exemptions that we currently have to the tax rates, and then really the estate planning strategies that many practitioners have been using for years. Some of those were really targeted. So let's start with the exemptions. So for gift and estate tax purposes, we currently have an exemption of $10 million adjusted for inflation, which means in 2021, we have an exemption of $11.7 million for both gift and estate tax purposes. So with that exemption today, you can either use some during your life and some at your death. Um, Whatever you use during life reduces then what's available at death. Under this proposal, um, those exemptions would be significantly reduced. Um, for the estate tax exemption, it would go from 11.7 million to three and a half million, and for gift tax purposes, all the way down to one million. So even though you know we have a situation where again we can use the exemptions during life and at death, we no longer would have a situation where we could use the same amount. The gift tax or transfers during life would be limited to only a million dollars. Then we turn to the tax rates. Currently, we have a a 40% rate um, that applies as soon as you go over and above the exemptions I just mentioned. Under the Sanders proposal, we'd have pretty significant rate increases, um, anywhere from 45% if your estate is somewhere between that 3.5 million and 10 million, all the way up to a rate of 65% for your assets over $1 billion. So some pretty significant rate increases there. Then, of course, those strategies I mentioned. You know, as an estate planner, many of these strategies are near and dear to my heart, um, and they're ones we've been using for several years now, um, but they're ones that are being targeted in this this bill. So, for example, um, the use of grantor trust. Um, That's a really great income tax benefit that we've been using. Um, And this proposal says that a grantor trust would no longer be effective for estate tax purposes. So if you have a grantor trust, it would be included in your estate. Um, GST tax planning, whereas now you can use your GST tax exemption and it can protect assets in a trust for as long as they're in that trust and as long as state law will allow. This proposal actually says that the exemption would only be effective for about 50 years. So again, really curtailing the use of GST tax exemption. 
And then for a couple of strategies or changes to strategies that frankly we've been hearing about for several years now, but are get once again being proposed. Uh, one, targeting valuation discounts, um, in effect limiting the ability to use discounts on closely held business interests, as well as taking a look at grantor retained annuity trusts or GRATs, um, whereas now we can zero out a GRAT or in other words, have a zero gift and it can be for a term as little as two years. Um, this proposal would actually require a minimum 10 year term and require a minimum gift. So really kind of pulling back on some of these tried and true strategies that we've been using for a long time. Seems like a lot of moving <laughs> parts in the Sanders plan and you estate planners certainly like your acronyms. <laughs> we um, do, said it's hard to get away from them. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to, to the next proposal, the STEP Act, which was introduced by Senator Van Hollen, has somewhat of a different twist. I think most recognizable to me would be a deemed disposition. Um, can you expand upon that and, and then the other elements of the STEP Act? Of course. So, and, and you're exactly right. I think that really the major component of this legislation is this idea of a deemed realization event, whether you're making a gift during your life or a transfer at death. So let's take a look at kind of what, what are the rules today? So if I make a gift of a million dollars to my son um, and that asset is worth a million dollars, but has a basis of $500,000, I make the transfer for gift tax purposes. Maybe I use gift tax exemption. Maybe I pay a little bit of gift tax, but I deal with the gift tax and then I'm done. I don't have to worry about an income tax event. Under the STEP Act and in a, in a companion bill in the House, which was very similar, the rule would change and say that, okay, if, if I give away that million-dollar asset with that $500,000 basis, I actually am going to trigger that, that appreciation, that built-in appreciation, and trigger a capital gains tax on that $500,000 of built-in appreciation. So what used to be somewhat of an income tax neutral transfer now has a, has a capital gains tax component that, that we didn't have before. There have been, you know, some exceptions, you know, posed in the in the draft legislation. Um, for example, tran transfers to a spouse or transfers to a charity. You know, kind of pretty consistent with what we think of now when we, you know, transfers to spouses and transfers to charity don't have estate and gift tax consequences often. So that same type of exception would be would be present in in this proposal as well. There are some exclusions, um, for example, an exclusion of up to a million dollars of appreciation at death. So if I gave that same million dollars to my son at death, um, but I had and I had five hundred thousand dollars of appreciation, I might be able to exclude some of that with my one million dollar um, exclusion um, there. So maybe I wouldn't have as much of a deemed disposition with that million dollars, but there could still be a pretty significant tax event. The one interesting thing about Senator Van Hollen's proposal is if, is its effective date. Um, he proposed this um, earlier this year with an effective date of January 1st, 2021. Yep, I said 2021. Um, <laughs> it is a retroactive idea um, where he said, you know, kind of the, the idea being that transfers even this year could possibly be subject to this deemed disposition rule. The House bill didn't have the same effective date. It actually waited until 2022. So that's still yet to be seen if something like this is passed, what the effective date would be. But it is important to know that that, that was something that was put on the table of having a potential retroactive effect. Interesting. I don't know how you would enforce that, but uh, I guess maybe that would be our next podcast. Right. <laughs> um, so it sounds like the STEP Act is a, a little is more closely aligned to Biden's proposals. 
um, the American Families Plan Green Book Act. So um, could you comment on that and maybe some of the similarities and differences between um, Biden's plan and the STEP Act? Absolutely. So you're right. And the American Families Plan um, that was introduced in April of this year um, and then in further clarified in effect in the Green Book in May, um, there was the same idea, the same dean disposition idea, uh, where certain gift transfers and transfers of death would be treated as recognition events. Again, same idea. If you make a gift during your life or transfer assets at your death, any built-in appreciation would be subject to a capital gains tax. Again, the idea of there being an exclusion a million dollar exclusion per person, um, as well as an exclusion for a principal residence. Those are a part of this proposal. But again, that same idea of the potential for deemed disposition. Interestingly enough here, the effective date would be 2022. Um, so President Biden didn't go the retroactive route that Senator, Senator Van Hollen did. You know, take that on from the, the transfer tax side. And then, of course, we have the income tax side that I think has also been getting a lot of uh, press, if you will. You know, and none of us should be all that surprised in terms of what came out in the American Families Plan, because frankly, candidate Biden was talking about a lot of these proposals at the time. But I think, you know, just kind of re reintroducing them. Um, so for on the income tax side, you know, the idea of increasing the top rate for individuals that make over $400,000, raising that rate to 39.6%. And then, of course, the um, proposed increase tax rate on capital gains and dividends um, up to 39.6% um, if household income is greater than a million dollars. And there have been a couple of other, common, you know, essentially proposals about changing the treatment of carried interests um, and limiting 1031 exchanges. Um, so I really think kind of the, the highlights of, you know, for, for individual taxpayers, what President Biden has been proposing really are those those increasing those rates and changing the way that we, we think of the capital gains treatment of transfers. Seems very similar to the platform that he was running on with a little bit of variation. You're exactly right. It's very similar. What, what's interesting is that, you know, candidate Biden did talk about lowering estate tax exemptions, possibly increasing estate tax rates, but he and, and talked a little bit about eliminating basis step up, but didn't really clarify the basis step up component until he, you know, kind of released these proposals where he has this deemed disposition idea. But interestingly enough, the exemptions haven't made it into into his proposal or increasing rates hasn't haven't made it into his proposals at this point. So speaking of that, there seems to be some unofficial proposals that we've been hearing about recently. And one that caught my eye was a bipartisan proposal with no tax increases. Um, what have you been hearing or reading around the rumor mill on things that have not been pen to paper? Great question. And, you know, I, th this is where to me it does sometimes get overwhelming because you hear so much and it's kind of like, what's actually going to get when you actually do put pen to paper? What will be what will actually be put on that paper? And of course, as you mentioned, the bipartisan infrastructure deal that was recently announced with no tax increases. Um, so, you know, that's interesting. I think most of us thought that we might see something in the, the kind of the, how do you pay for this bill? But there were no income tax uh, increases in that bill. We've been reading about you know, where will the capital gains taxes really land? 
you know, this idea of, you know, maybe a 28% rate. Um, there's been talk about changing the SALT deduction or the state and local tax deduction. Um, currently, there's a limit of $10,000. You know, we've heard that there are some senators that, you know, are interested in getting rid of that cap or maybe qualifying that cap a little bit more based on how much um, income there is. So I think there is really still a lot to be seen, a lot of negotiation. I, I do think President Biden's been pretty forthcoming in terms of saying he's willing to negotiate. Um, so I do think probably over the next couple of months, we will see a lot of negotiation and it will be interesting to see where we land. This is where I wish I had a crystal ball um, so I could tell people what I, you know, what so might happen. But, <laughs> um, so I, I, so I do think a lot of this will have to be wait and see. So in light of the crystal ball, um, in the possible changes and the lack of uncertainty, um, many clients have asked us what they should be considering now. So for example, we have many clients ask us about SLATs. There you go with another acronym. <laughs> Can you tell us about why a SLAT may be a good planning strategy right now? Sure. And you know, I think with a SLAT or a Spousal Lifetime Access Trust, um, to spell out that acronym, um, you know, really the idea is this idea of making a gift now, right? We talked about how in 2021, we've got an $11.7 million exemption and that those exemptions could go away or could change. Even if Senator Sanders' proposal isn't enacted, our current law says that those exemptions will be cut in half as of January 1st, 2026. So the idea with the SLAT is really twofold. One, using the exemption while you have it, transferring assets to a trust, using the exemption and getting them off of your balance sheet and letting them appreciate within the trust. So not only do you get the assets out of the estate, but you also get any appreciation out of the estate. So that can be, you can really leverage your exemption that way. So that's really the first reason a SLAT works nicely. The second is the identity of the SLAT. Again, spousal lifetime access trust. A SLAT is really any trust where the spouse of the grantor is a beneficiary. The spouse may be the only beneficiary during the spouse's life, could be a beneficiary with children or grandchildren. It's really just about having the spouse in there. Um, and the reason clients have really liked this idea and, and, and drafted a lot of these over the last year or so is because even though you're making the large gift, having the spouse in there as a beneficiary allows the couple still to have access to the assets. So you're able to leverage the exemption while the spouse can say, okay, if we need these assets in the future, maybe there's a health concern or there's a financial situation that's unexpected, the spouse can actually access the trust as a beneficiary. So as long as the spouse is alive, we have a situation where the grantor has given assets away, but as a couple, they've still retained access to those if they need them. So that can get people much more comfortable using those large exemption amounts um, because they're not giving them away you know, where they no longer can ever, you know, they can never touch them again. Some flexibility built in there. Absolutely. A lot of, and, and what's nice about on the flexibility side really is the trust can be drafted. It's not as, it's not kind of like a grat, which is very specific in terms of how it has to be drafted. The slat can be very much what the grantor wants it to be. So for example, maybe it's just the spouse as a beneficiary, maybe it's spouse and kids. And so there's a lot of flexibility in what those terms look like and really allow the grantor to express intent and achieve goals through that. So let's touch base. We talked about things being retroactive prior. So what happens if a client creates a and funds a slat or some other planning mechanism um, now, and then the law changes later this year. Can that be undone? How is that undone? 
Um, I'm sure a lot of clients have come to us and said, is this final? Um, love your thoughts there. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, th this is something, you know, that we have been talking a lot about because there is so much uncertainty and it's hard when, you know, we've got proposals, but we don't know where we will end up. So flexibility really is the name of the game here. And, you know, there's the one aspect of flexibility I just talked about in terms of how a trust is drafted, but this flexibility is really more about, you know, how do we take a second look? How do we kind of tweak some planning if we need to, in order to address, you know, some changes in tax law? So, there are a lot of different ways that you can do this. And I'll just name a couple in particular ones that we've been seeing a lot of clients use. Um, so for example, um, disclaimer planning is, has been rather popular. So it's where a trust is drafted to include a provision that allows somebody on behalf of the trust to disclaim the gift or in other words, say, no, thank you. Um, and, and by doing that, if if it's done within nine months and follows the, the rules under the Internal Revenue Code, it can actually completely undo the gift. Um, so if, you know, for example, if we have retroactive legislation and exemptions are reduced, or we have retroactive legislation and we have a deemed disposition, that disclaimer provision might be able to be used to say, okay, let's undo it. We didn't want to trigger that capital gains tax, or we didn't mean to use too much exemption. So we, it's a way to take a second look. And as long as you do it within the right time, frame, it's kind of no harm, no foul, if you will. Another option is our formula gifts. Um, so for example, especially for clients that are concerned about exemptions changing, um, you know, retroactively, instead of making a gift of a specific dollar amount or specific shares of a stock, you can actually draft um, a gift agreement that says, you know, I, Teresa, am giving as much of my exemption that I have left. So I've defined it in a way that references the exemption rather than a specific dollar amount or a specific number of shares. So that if my exemption is reduced, my gift is automatically reduced. So again, it's a way to kind of plan for today for what might be happen later. And if nothing happens, I've given that $11.7 million away. So it's a way to, you know, kind of have, you know, have your cake and eat it too, if you will, because you've done the planning to the extent you can, but haven't done too much planning if something changes. Makes sense and seems flexible, which yep. is flexibility can be key here. Yeah, absolutely. So if we shift gears to income taxes, um, and in particular, the proposal to increase capital gains tax rates to 39.6% for households with income greater than a million dollars. This has certainly many of our clients wondering what they can and should do to mitigate that possible increase. Any ideas there? Yeah, you know, I, I think that kind of the the options really fall within two big categories as I see it. One, you know, accelerating income, um, or two, smoothing out income in future years. So, so what do I mean by that? The, you know, the idea of accelerating income. So if, you know, we think that the capital gains tax rates are going to go up in 2022, we might want to accelerate some income to this year. And I don't mean go out and sell everything. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Um, but certainly if there are assets that, you know, you're thinking maybe you have a closely held business that you're thinking you're going to sell, you know, maybe selling it in 2021 rather than 2022 makes sense from a capital gains perspective or a piece of real estate um, that you plan that, you know, you already know you want to liquidate. Having that triggering that gain this year when rates could be lower is one way to, you know, miss miss out, if you will, on that potential increase of, of um, capital gains tax. I will note that this has a little bit of, you know, again, this idea of retroactivity. President Biden's proposal did suggest an April 2021 effective date for the capital gains tax increase. 
again, how that would work practically, especially in the middle of a year. Um, and, you know, when people are selling things, I think that could be difficult to administer and it would still have to be enacted. But it's something to keep in mind that it could that could be something that's enacted mid-year. Um, so keep that in mind as you're thinking about assets that you might plan to sell. And if, if you're thinking about triggering gain. Certainly would keep the CPAs busy. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you imagine? And all the, the 1099s that would have to be issued with oh. different with different dates. So it could be tricky. And, you know, the second piece really smoothing out income. So once we get into, you know, you know, future years, if we do have this idea of a million dollars being the threshold for when we, we get into like a 39.6% rate, you know, how do we smooth out our income so we don't have a year where we have a huge, you know, income tax event and in other years have smaller? How, you know, how do we kind of smooth it out over the years so we stay under that million dollars? You know, a couple of options are things like installment sales, where instead of, you know, taking the proceeds, you know, reporting the proceeds all in one year, um, you can do an installment sale so you get paid over time and report over time. Um, charitable remainder trusts, where you put assets into a trust for the benefit of, of charity after a term of years. And as you take um, distributions from that trust, you would you would um, recognize income. So those are really both ways to defer income, um, you know, which is somewhat different than what I was just talking about in terms of accelerating income. But here you're deferring in order to smooth it out over a period of years. Um, you have to be careful, especially in a year like this year, um, things within like installment sales and CRTs, because if you do something like that today, and you defer some of the income, and then we have an increase in the rate later. You might you might defer to a higher tax rate. So so again, it's always important to really work with your legal and tax advisors to make sure that you know any of these strategies. How do they fit with the assets you have in your personal income tax situation? Because it will it will vary depending on each person's um, situation. Well, that's an awfully lot to consider, <laughs> um, and we really appreciate your time, Teresa. Seems like we may have a while to wait for some clarity on, on these subjects. Um, however, while we wait, as you suggested, I think it's important to work closely with your legal, your tax, and your investment professionals to ensure the planning that has been done will work for a client's particular situation. Um, so for more on this topic, you can visit our website at wealth.us.cibc.com. We appreciate your time. And we look forward to the next Affluent Minds podcast. Thank you. CIBC Private Wealth Management includes CIBC National Trust Company, CIBC Delaware Trust Company, CIBC Private Wealth Advisors Incorporated, all of which are wholly owned subsidiaries of CIBC Private Wealth Group, LLC, and the private banking division of CIBC Bank USA. All of these entities are wholly owned subsidiaries of Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. This document is intended for informational purposes only, and the material presented should not be construed as an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Concepts expressed are current as of the date of this publication only and may change without notice. Such concepts are the opinions of our investment professionals, many of whom are chartered financial analyst charter holders or certified financial planner professionals. Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards Incorporated owns the certification marks CFP and Certified Financial Planner U.S. There is no guarantee that these views will come to pass. Past performance does not guarantee future comparable results. The tax information contained herein is general and for informational purposes only. CIBC Private Wealth Management does not provide legal or tax advice, and the information contained herein should only be used in consultation with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors. 
To the extent that information contained herein is derived from third-party sources, although we believe the sources to be reliable, we cannot guarantee their accuracy. The CIBC logo is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Investment products are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed.